If you knew that today was your last day on earth, how would that change your plans? What if you knew that it was the last day for the person that you loved most on this earth? It was their last day. How would that affect you? How would that change the plans that you have for today, for tomorrow, for next week? We don't think about life and death really in those terms. We tend to see life as we look at our schedule, and I can look weeks out and see all kinds of things that are planned already. We tend to think of death as something that's out there somewhere. Sure, we know it's inevitable. It's coming for all of us, but it doesn't really register that much until sort of like driving by a bad car accident. You slow down for the next four or five miles because it's sort of stirred something in you. You know, you realize, whew, that, that could have been me and my family. And so it jolts you a little bit, but, you know, 10 minutes later, you're, you're speeding again. It's really the way we approach life and death, I think. As Christians, we understand the brevity of it all. We understand the reality and the enormity of eternity. But I think we still get so um, caught up in the pace of life that death is something really most of us don't want to think about. And so not just the busyness of life that pushes it aside, but sometimes I think we intentionally um, hush those prompts to think about it and to plan and be wise, and no, we don't, we don't want to think about that. Well, today we look at one of the most unusual passings of someone in the Bible. This will be their last day on earth, and like I said in my prayer, this is a, this is a chapter that so, is so much bigger than me. If I had 20 years to study this and try to unpack all that it contains, I would still fall very short of being able to do so. And so I was talking with Jaron and Rachel last week or whenever about this, and I said, I just, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just, I'm going to try to give little bits and pieces of all the vastness of this chapter today. Um, I usually don't teach that way, but I'm just, I'm really not sure how to approach this. So I think we just need to jump in and ask God to do what he wants to do. Last week, we finished the book of First Kings. And I kept saying last week, turn to 1 Kings chapter 23, and obviously you saw there's no 1 Kings chapter 23. I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, anyway. So we finished the book of 1 Kings last week, and we saw the astounding providence of God play out in the death of wicked King Ahab with that random arrow shot by a random soldier at a random time, and it came down and found the little gap between Ahab's plates of armor and ended his life just as God said that it would. And then we're told that his son, Ahaziah, took the throne, and we're told, sadly, that he also, just like his father, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And there's that phrase again. He didn't just do evil according to your measurement or mine. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's really all that matters about our life, is how God views our life. So now he's on the throne, and as we move into 2 Kings today, I just want to do a quick overview of chapter 1, because our focus is going to be on chapter 2, and then God willing, next week we'll be in chapter 3, which is another strange chapter in the Bible, but man, I'm so excited to get there next week. 
because it's filled with beautiful truth about the grace and love uh, and kindness of our God. So to summarize chapter 1 briefly, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, was living in wickedness, and the Bible tells us that we don't know what happened, we don't know if he slipped, we don't know if he was partying and drunk, but it said that he fell through the lattice work on the upper floor um, of his palace, and he fell down and was critically injured. So he sent messengers to go to their pagan god to inquire of their gods as to whether or not he was going to recover or whether he was going to die. Now we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, these are the guys on their way to the false gods, and say to them, now listen to this phrase, you want to hear the heart of God. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, speaking now to the king, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, we must remember, these are supposed to be God's people. This is Israel. This is God's promised land. The king leading them is supposed to be a godly king, leading the people in the ways of the Lord. But we've seen now for many weeks, they're worshiping idols. They've gone astray. They've turned their back on God. And so God has to continue sending judgment on them in hopes of turning their hearts back to him. And that's really what chapter one is all about. Um, it's, a, it's another odd chapter, but we see that King Ahaziah is furious that Elijah would dare send him this message. And so he sends at three different times, three separate detachments of 50 soldiers each to go and capture Elijah and bring him back. Imagine thinking that you need 50 people to bring one man back. I think it shows us a little bit of the, um, the power that Elijah had in the eyes of these people and the fear that this king had over this one old prophet. There's something there. But he sends the first detachment of soldiers to go and capture Elijah, and Elijah says to them, if I'm a prophet of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. Wow, it's, it's kind of ugly Sunday morning stuff, you know? That's exactly what happened. So news gets back to the king, and he, without a blink of an eye, sends the second detachment. Now imagine being the guys in the second detachment. They go out, the same thing happens. Fire consumes them. The king sends a third detachment. Now this leader of the third detachment has a, a, little, a little more brains than the first two guys, and instead of going up to Elijah sitting up on the hill there and yelling at him, he comes on his knees, and he says, please, please, you know, don't call down fire. We'd just like you to come with us. And so um, Elijah went with them. And he spoke the truth to them once again. And you would, have, you would think that by now, after all that God has done, after all the miracles he's shown, the judgments that have fallen from heaven, including this right here, you'd think that these people would go, man, we've had enough of this. You know, these gods of ours, they're not working out so great. And you would think they would turn back to the God of heaven, but they don't. They continued in their sin, and God's word came true once again. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 17, right at the end. So Ahaziah died, there's this phrase again, according to the word of the Lord. 
which Elijah had spoken. So now Ahab is dead. Now his son is dead. And we come today, as I said, to the end of the prophet Elijah's earthly journey. Uh, I mentioned, look, we could get six or seven separate sermons out of this chapter, I believe. But what I, instead of taking six or seven weeks to be in one chapter, because Tim Atwood would never let me live that down after what I did in Genesis for months and months, I, I just want to, as I said, try to, try to take little bites from each of these profound truths that we see in this chapter and just give us a taste of them, maybe enough just to get you hungry to dive in and dig in a little bit more on your own. So we've known since back in 1 Kings chapter 19, a few weeks ago we looked at the call of Elisha. Elijah came, uh, Elisha was plowing in the field, Elijah threw his mantle around him as a symbol that he was bringing him under his covering. He was going to be the next prophet called by God um, to take Elijah's place. We knew from then that Elijah would one day be stepping down from his role as prophet and Elijah, Elisha would be his successor. And since that day, these two men have spent many years together, every day, ministering together. And Elisha, as we'll see uh, next week in one little phrase there, um, Elisha this whole time has been the servant still of Elijah. He's been in his shadow. He's been watching him, learning from him. Now we've arrived at Elijah's final day. And what do we find him doing? We find him going from one city to the next in chapter 2. And we see Elisha walking with him. Now, each of these cities that they went to, this could be a sermon on its own. Each of these cities that they went to, all of them are important places in the journey of Israel's history into the promised land. And we've studied about those cities in in the past. But also, these cities are important because in each of these locations, there is what the Bible calls a school of the prophets. And we think that Elijah probably started these and that he was the mentor to these men just like you would have Bible colleges or something today. And so in every one of these cities that Elijah travels to on his last day, there is a school of prophets, and he's going there, we can only assume, to encourage these men to be faithful, to challenge them uh, as a father would do to his children uh, if he's on his deathbed and wants to give them some final encouragement for the Lord. And these verses tell us that Elijah already knows that this is his last day on earth. Would you want to know that ahead of time or not? I'm not really sure. So he knows. It tells us that Elisha also knows. God has revealed it to him. And it also tells us that the prophets in all of these schools, in all of these cities, also know that it's Elijah's last day on earth. And as they visit each of these schools, we're told in these verses that these prophets keep coming up to Elisha and sort of pulling him aside and saying, hey, do you know that God is going to take your master away from you today? And Elisha gets really frustrated with this. And he says, yes, I know. Be quiet. Stop talking. I don't want to think about that right now. And he gets really frustrated with them. And so God has already revealed to all of them that this is going to happen. And as Elijah and Elisha are walking along from city to city, Elijah, it appears, is giving younger Elisha one final test to prove his commitment to this very serious calling as the prophet of Israel. As you look at the first six verses, 
Elijah gives Elisha multiple opportunities to quit, multiple chances to back out of this mission. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, and that gives us a little hint of what's coming up, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Verse 2. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now skip to verse 4. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Skip to verse 6. And Elijah said to him again, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jordan. But he said, you want the modern version of this? He said, not on your life. That's what he's saying, not on your life. He said, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now, Elisha, as I said, had been Elijah's servant for a long time. He had seen firsthand how difficult and how lonely the life of a prophet was. He had felt the sting of hateful words and opposition for years. And it seems that Elijah, as he's preparing younger Elisha now to take this role, it seems that he's burdened with this thought of, you know, the last thing the ministry of God needs is someone who will start out strong but won't finish strong. We see this all the time. In fact, uh, if, you, if you want an interesting book to read, pick up uh, Steve Farrar's book called Finishing Strong. It's, it's quite an eye-opener. Elijah himself, the older prophet, has, he has a lot of hard miles on his odometer. He, he's been through a lot of hard things. He knows how tough this calling is, and he wants to make sure one last time that Elisha is in this for the right reasons, and he's committed to the calling. So over and over again, he tells Elisha, just stay here. And I think, it's a, I think it's a wonderfully wise thing that he's doing. I think it's a very kind, gracious thing that he's offering to people. I've told you before, sometimes people will come and say, you know, I, I think God has uh, called me to uh, Ethiopia or whatever as a missionary. And I'm like, dude, you won't even help Sweep the hallway back there. You're not going to make it anywhere else. See, sometimes it's best to try to discourage people from their enthusiasm, their naive enthusiasm, until they've had some time to get a few bumps and bruises and scars. And this seems to be what Elijah is making sure of. People's hearts in Israel have turned away now for decades. And I believe Elijah just wants to make absolutely sure that Elisha is completely committed to this call. Elijah, Elisha repeatedly refuses to leave. He's determined to continue the entire mission. And I think it's beautiful to see that because he refused to quit, because he refused to leave the mission, he was blessed by witnessing one of the most amazing events in history coming up in a few verses. And he was also in the right place for God's power to be handed down to him, to enable him to carry out this mission. And you know, I just want to say, I think too many Christians end up taking spiritual retirement. 
They reach a certain point in their life, you know, the kids are grown, the kids are gone, um, and they just check out spiritually. They say, yeah, you know, I, I used to help in the children's ministry, I used to serve here and there, but I've done my part, I've served my time, I'm spiritually retired now. If you can find that in the Bible, let me know, because I'm going to take up on that. You know, there are days when I, I think, oh, it's time, time just to quit this whole mission, it's too hard. But we don't see that in the Bible. You know what we see in Elijah? We see in him a man who's faithfully involved in serving the Lord right up to the very end. And I'll tell you, we need more people like Elijah. We need more people today in the church, in the work of the Lord, who aren't in it just for the the popcorn machines in the lobby or the entertainment up on stage every Sunday. They're in it for the right reasons. They're committed to go the distance right up to the very end. Can I just ask you quickly before we move on, have you spiritually checked out? Where are you on this? You know, look, I can't take time to really spend on this. Um, Pam shared it with us last Sunday. After all this COVID junk, you know, COVID's done a number on the church, the church, the whole church. We need help. I'll just tell you. We need you to roll up your sleeves and say, God, where do you want me to serve? We just need help. It's where we are. And if the church as a whole is going to come back strong from this, it's going to take all of us doing our part. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've seen where people reach a certain stage of life and they just go, that's it. From now on, I'm showing up on Sunday. Don't ask me to do anything else. In fact, I've had people tell me that directly. I shared with you once a story about Alan Corbin and I going into an adult Sunday school class years ago at uh, the church where we were, and they needed help as well, as always, in children's ministry. And we went in and said, you know, hey, we've got some openings, we need help. And they all just sat there and stared at us. And I said, well, thank you for your time. And we walked out, and before we were out of the room, the teacher said, now, getting back to where we were before we were interrupted, and it was like, you know, kind of kicking the rear end. A lot of people are there in life. Hey, don't become one of those people. It's just an ugly thing to see. Say, God, use me to the very end. Just think of how it would bring glory to God if all of us were committed not to drop out at any point, but to go on serving him right up to the end. Well, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 7 now says, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them, that's Elijah and Elisha, at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. And it was parted to the one side and to the other, so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, again, there's a whole sermon here of meaning here. God performs the same miracle now that he did earlier that we looked at in, uh, for, for Joshua and the people of Israel as they were coming over into the promised land and would be camped at Gilgal there for the, the first portion before Jericho. The Jordan River is a symbol of many things. Um, it was a symbol for the Israelites of uh, the crossing over from the old life to the new life. It's also a symbol, I'm sure you've heard in many hymns over the years, a symbol of death, of, of crossing over the Jordan into heaven. And so there's a lot of symbolism here, but time, time won't let us really dig into this um, today. Verse 9, when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask me what I may do for you before I'm taken away from you. Elisha said, please 
let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, this request doesn't make any sense to us today at all. But where this comes from is back in Deuteronomy um, chapter 21, around verse 17, I believe, where the law of God mentions that the firstborn son, the oldest son, was to receive a double portion, twice as much of his father's inheritance. One of the reasons for that, and there were several, but one of the reasons for that was purely practical because after the father died, it was the firstborn's responsibility to step into the role as leader of the family, both financially and spiritually. And so this was sort of equipping him to step into his father's shoes and to be able to carry out that role. Now, Elisha isn't asking that God would let him do twice as many miracles as Elijah. That's not what he's asking. He's not asking for anything selfish. He's not asking that he can own twice as much stuff as Elijah. When he says, give me a double portion of your spirit, he's simply using the language of the day to say, would you please allow me to be considered as Elijah's firstborn spiritual son, as his true successor, to take up where Elijah left off. This is not a selfish request. As a matter of fact, I I see this as the request of a man who understands the seriousness of the role that he's about to take on. And he knows he cannot carry it out in his own strength. He's asking for the spiritual equipping that this ministry will certainly require. And again, I have to pause here and wonder, do you and I, do you and I understand how completely weak and incapable we are of doing anything for God on our own? Oh, I think we forget this so often. We get slick programs and equipment and fancy this and that and the other, and, and we, we just kind of go, ah, let's just push these buttons and turn these dials and do this thing, and we'll have another church service. Well, you can do that. Folks, I want to tell you, on our own, we can't do anything for God. We can't do anything for eternity. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Are we functioning as individuals and as families and as a church in the spirit, in the spirit's power, not depending on our own strength and cleverness and training and gifts and all of that? If we did understand our utter weakness. I don't think there would be a day that would go by that we wouldn't come before the Lord and say, Lord, I need more of you and less of me, as John 3.30 so beautifully says. We'd be soberly aware that without him, we literally can do nothing. This is where Elisha was. Verse 10, and Elijah said to him, you've asked a hard thing. He said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And again, we read this and go, well, this is so bizarre. What is Elijah doing? Does he have some kind of magic trick here or some kind of special formula that he's using? No, I think it's, it's actually very simple. Elijah, first of all, is saying, look, this is a great thing you've asked for. It's a very hard thing. It's something that I'm incapable of giving to you. I can't impart that to you. That can only come from God. And so what he's saying, in a sense, is don't look to me for this. It's important that you're with me when God comes to take me in a moment 
so that you're in the presence of God, so that you can see this power of God displayed. And if you're there and you see that, then you'll be in the right place for God to grant this request for you. Verse 11, as they continued on and talked, I just love the casualness of this statement. As they continued on and talked, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Again, another whole sermon, maybe a mini-series here. So Elijah was taken up into heaven without having to experience death. There are only two people in history that we know of, recorded in the Bible for us, that got to bypass death. One was in Genesis chapter 5. We studied that chapter a long time ago where I told you it seems like a boring chapter, but man, is it loaded. It goes name by name by name. It says so-and-so lived so many years, and he died, and he died, and he died. But then you get down to Enoch, and it says Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Explain that, Phil. I, I couldn't on my best day. God's sovereignty, that's what he chose to do. And there are lessons in that that I'm sure escape the best of us. So Enoch was taken, and now Elijah is taken into heaven in this spectacular display of God's glory and power. And I think it's a display of God's power over life and death. Verse 12, and Elisha saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Again, that's a phrase we could spend an hour on. So he saw him no more. And he took, this is Elisha, he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. That was a sign, still is, by the way, in certain parts of the world, in the Middle East, tearing one's clothes is a sign of the, the deepest distress and sadness and loss. And Elisha, you know, while, while this must have been an amazing sight to see, Elisha is overcome with sadness because he's all alone now. In an instant, he's all alone. Perhaps in the middle of a sentence, it says, while they walked along and talked, boom, Elijah's gone. This man who had been his spiritual father, a mentor, a leader to him, a covering for him, a protection for him, he's gone. But the first few words of that verse do tell us that Elisha saw it when it happened. And so we know that Elisha's request was granted by the Lord. And we immediately see that power begin to unfold now in the life of Elisha. See, up till this point, the whole story of Elisha's life has been very, very quiet. We saw back in chapter 19, as I said, how Elijah walked out into the field and threw his mantle over Elisha. And uh, Elisha chopped up his wooden plowing equipment, set fire to it, and went off with Elijah as a very strong statement of commitment. But from that point on in chapter 19, Elisha has just kind of been non-existent, just in the shadows. Now you see, here's a lesson as well. Wonder what he was doing all those years. Well, as I said, next week we'll get a little picture of that. It was very menial work for years. You know why? Because God will not entrust us with more until we've been faithful with what we have. We saw this a few weeks ago. I think it's worth repeating. Some people who are excited about the Lord and serving him and allowing their life to be used of him, sometimes they want to 
They want to skip some stages. They want to jump ahead. They think that's the best thing to do. Oh God, if you would just call me to be a pastor right now. I know I'm only 18, but I know I can do it. Yeah, no, you can't. And I look back in my life of all the things I thought I was ready for at certain times. And I was maybe frustrated that God wasn't moving faster. I look back now and go, Lord, thank you so much. I would have been destroyed if I had tried to jump ahead of you. And so all these years, nothing written about Elisha's faithfulness, but he was faithful just the same. The same is going to be true in your life. Folks, you will have more years on this earth, in the shadows, behind the scenes, serving quietly, without recognition, than you ever will in the spotlight. One of the things that, where are we on time? I got to hurry. One of the things that frustrates me, and the elders know this, is that I have to be up here every Sunday. This is not me. I don't want to be in front of people. I don't want to be seen. You know, when we did the live streaming stuff last year, I thought, this is my chance to preach from my bed at home now forever. I don't, I don't ever have to stand up in front of people again. I'm the guy who quit the public speaking class years ago and said, I will never do that again. And so, you know, the, the prayer meeting this past week, I shared with the folks, I just came and I just sat. That's all I did. I just sat for like an hour. And I just listened, and I just soaked it in. I didn't say a word. And that was such a gift to me, to be able to be in a church setting and not be looked at, not be called upon, you know, not be asked to share some wisdom. Just let me, just let me soak it in and be quiet and be invisible. I long for that. Now, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, that's not what I'm implying, but I'm just saying prior to me being up here, there were decades where nobody knew who I was. And I was just serving the Lord faithfully with my wife in that horrible Sunday school class with all those like 800 little kids running everywhere. For years, she made me do that. And all of that was all preparation. You know, the, tr the thing in Atlanta that we did for two years, every weekend driving to Atlanta and back with two little kids to help start that church. All of that in the shadows. But boy, did it pay off. And so I would encourage you, listen, if, if you are frustrated and impatient at where God has you in your journey right now, I would encourage you to flip that around and start thanking him for it. Because at some point, you're going to see the wisdom in it. And you're going to see that the time in the shadows helped you, like being at the gym day after day, slowly building those muscles that you need to be able to lift the heavier weights down the road somewhere. As you can see, I spend a lot of time, in the gym. Verse 13. Elisha also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Now, this is the same mantle we've just been talking about that Elijah put around Elisha's shoulders years earlier. Verse 14. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided to the one side and to the other, and Elisha crossed over. Now, when Elisha asks, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He's, he's not questioning the existence of God. He's just seen the display of God's power. If anything, he's trembling under the awareness of the reality of, of God's presence and power. But he's well aware that 
There's no power in this mantle itself. There's no power within himself. And so he's, he's calling on God to come and show his power. And God comes and performs the same miracle that he had performed through Elijah just a little while earlier. And God seems to be showing and validating that Elisha is indeed the next chosen prophet and that God is going to move through him just as powerfully as he had done through Elijah. And we see the immediate effect that this had on those who saw this happen. Verse 15, this was a witness to others. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So now the torch had been passed and these younger men saw it and they honored Elisha in the right kind of way. And for God to uh, perform this miracle through Elisha at the very beginning of this ministry was no small thing. We must remember what I said earlier. Israel is in a spiritual state of disaster right now. And at this point, the few in Israel who did trust in the Lord were probably thinking, oh no, Elijah the prophet is gone. This is terrible news. What will we ever do without him? You know, people often have the same concern today. Some prominent Christian figure dies, and they're convinced that God's work is going to lose power and influence. Listen, when a, when a man or woman of God dies, nothing of God dies with them. We sometimes make the mistake of putting people up on pedestals and thinking, boy, if God's going to do anything, he's going to do it through them. How foolish are we? God could use an unnamed eight-year-old girl to bring revival that the greatest, most well-known evangelist could never bring about. God's power isn't limited to any particular person or ministry. God's work and power are never frustrated by the events of this world. And we must always remember as well that our help and our power are only found in the name of the Lord. Well, these men in the school of the prophets were struggling with this very thing. They, they knew that Elijah had been a powerful prophet. They'd heard him preach. They'd, they knew about the powerful miracles, and now suddenly he's gone, and they're thinking, this can't be. We need to get him back. We need him for at least a few more years. The work of the Lord won't be the same without him. And so they say in these verses, well, Maybe God picked him up and then dropped him back down on another mountain somewhere. And so they start pestering Elijah saying, can we please go look for him? Elijah, Elisha says, there's, there's no need to do that. But they finally break Elisha down. They go, they search for him all over the place. And they come back three days later and they say, yeah, you're right, he's, he's gone. I feel, I feel bad for Elisha there. It's almost like they're saying, we don't want you, Elisha. We want Elijah back. Probably a bit of a bummer for Elisha to feel that. You know, they come back, Elijah's gone. You're right, he's, he's gone. And as we read these verses, you know, we, we may conclude as well, Elijah's gone, we've seen the last of him. But can I just tell you, we haven't. We haven't. Turn to Luke 9 quickly. Elijah has just been taken away, so it would seem that his life is over. But about 800 years go by, and Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up to the top of a mountain to pray. By the way, that statement in itself, wow. Could you imagine? Luke 9, 29. And as he prayed, the appearance of his countenance or his face was altered and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. 
They appeared in glory and spoke about his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But unlike 2 Kings chapter 2, the focus is now not on Elijah. The focus is entirely on Elijah's Lord. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah was the great prophet. And I think these two men, are they, they appear there as sort of a, a summary of the entire Old Testament period. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So God sends Moses the lawgiver and Elijah the prophet almost as exclamation points on Christ's ministry and authority. The fact that they were talking with Jesus shows that they see Jesus as the, the fulfillment, the completion of their earthly ministries. Jesus himself said, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets concerning me. I mean, what would Moses and Elijah, dead for hundreds of years, what would they have to talk about with Jesus? Moses was the great lawgiver, as I said. Elijah was the great prophet. Yet when they appear with Jesus, Moses doesn't want to talk about the law. Uh, Elijah doesn't want to talk about calling down fire from heaven. The only thing they want to talk about is what the death of Christ is about to accomplish. That's powerful. If I was Moses or Elijah, surely I'd want to sneak in some of my credits from way back. They don't even mention it. All they're focused on, wow, the, the departure, the death of Christ is about to accomplish something incredible. Moses, great as he was, Elijah, great as he was, were both sinners in need of redemption and forgiveness that can only come through the death of Christ on the cross. And that's what they both want to talk about in that moment, hundreds of years after they left this earth. All of the law that was given, all the miracles that they had performed, all of that in the Old Testament was all pointing to this, the death of the Son of God on the cross, dying in their place. I think there's something else that the appearance of Moses and Elijah teach us very clearly. It teaches us, once again, of the reality of the existence of another world. This life is not the end, folks. All of us are going to live somewhere forever. We are eternal souls. So may I ask you quickly, in all of your busyness, making plans and preparations for this life, are you prepared for the life to come? Have you taken any time at all to think about where you will spend eternity? You know, a person can literally live this life like a king and queen, and they can end up with nothing in eternity. Ahab and Jezebel, who we've just been studying, they were the king and queen. They lived it up. They had everything they wanted, and they both died humiliating deaths with dogs licking up their blood. And yet, there was Elijah who spent his life being despised and mocked and ridiculed and hated, and his life ends by riding off in a whirlwind to glory. The Bible reminds us again and again, despite what all the best-selling Christian books will tell you, it reminds us again and again that this Christian life will be filled with battles and hardships and opposition and pain and loss. But when it's all over, that's when there is a glory awaiting us that the unsaved world knows nothing of. Nothing. Are you willing to wait? Or do you want to build your kingdom here? Do you want to have it all here? Well, I must, I must finish. 
I find it, I, I can't ignore the fact that God's timing is written all over this chapter. You remember a few chapters earlier, Elijah was so discouraged that he actually asked God to kill him. He said, God, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. Take my life. That to Elijah seemed like the best possible solution and plan for him in that moment. But imagine if God had granted Elijah's request back then. Think of all he would have missed out on. Think of that. All he would have missed out on. I think this should teach us to leave our lives in God's sovereign hands, to trust him with the timing. It also teaches us that I think even in our lowest, most depraved, most depressed, saddest, weakest moments of life, when we feel there's no point going on, that doesn't mean that God is finished with you. If that's where you are right now, I want to encourage you to to press on and to trust God's timing, knowing that it's much better and much wiser than yours. Well, that's a lot for us to consider this morning, I know, and I've left an awful lot out. But maybe one of these areas has connected with where you are in life. Maybe you've been tempted to clock out spiritually, or maybe you already have. Today, God might be prompting your heart to say, hey, clock back in. Stay faithful. I need you. I need you in my service. You're important. You matter to what we're doing for the kingdom of God. Maybe like Elisha, you need to recognize how desperately you need God's power to carry on and be faithful in this life. And maybe you would want to pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit every day. Give me a, if I can be bold enough, give me a double portion of just, just fill me to overflowing. God, I want to be the one who steps in and carries on the work that needs to be done. Maybe you've been so caught up in this life that you haven't been paying attention to the life to come. You've never settled the matter of eternity. Folks, if you've never done that, I urge you in these closing songs we're going to sing now, Or after the service, cry out to the Lord, come and talk to me, grab somebody, whatever you need to do, settle this matter of eternity while you have time. Or maybe this morning you find yourself in that low place of discouragement and defeat like Elijah had been in, and you're convinced God is finished with you. You're convinced there's nothing else for you to go on to. Can I just encourage you, lift up your eyes. Look ahead. Ask God to help you see beyond the problems of the moment, to fill you with hope. Once again, to know that he's not finished with you. Well, these are some incredible truths we've tried to pack into this one morning. I hope it hasn't been too much or too quick. My prayer today is that God would just take one of these things, just one of them, and make it very dear, very precious to each of our hearts that we could carry with us today to strive towards living a life like Elijah and Elisha did, being faithful to the Lord right up to the very end. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina. 29616 USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart.